and being quiet is already a prayer. You know, that we do it because we really, if someone had to say, why do you sit? We, we come here and we don't, I, none of us would say we sit because that's the deal there. In order to have the class, you have to sit. We all come here to sit at here or at home because you feel better after you do. Because you come back into your best mind. Into your, uh, what the, some people call your original mind. But your best mind, the mind that's under all of the turmoil of what did I do or didn't do or need to do or he said or I know this or that, what's going to happen about this or that. The mind settles down. We realize that the person that, the, the essence of us is really compassion. It's interesting because I say that when, when I teach new people to be teachers, they say, you know, the thing that worries me the most is when you say to a group of people, does anyone have any questions about the Dharma talk or their practice or whatever? They said, you know, I, I, I worry that someone will ask a question in front of all those people and I won't know the answer. I said, you don't have to worry about it because the answer to everything is compassion. That's it, so that you can start back, you know, like on Jeopardy, they tell you the answer and then you tell them the question. So... Uh, the answer to everything is compassion. That why are we doing this? Because, here, so here, why are we doing this? Because if we did this, our minds would, of their own selves, if we don't disturb them, settle down because they have that nature. You catch a, a flu. If you catch something that is not uh, a, 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 a malignant disease that will grow and really overwhelm your body's resources, if you catch most things and you take care of yourself, your body recuperates by itself. It knows how to do it. It doctors itself. And uh, a lot of the mind doctors itself. Even if we are really, really stricken in the mind, if we lose something or someone that's very dear to us. Do you remember last week I read, uh, I read to you a little piece from... Uh, Leon Wiesenthal about uh, uh, watching Turner classic movies as a, and he says this important line. I'm going to, I'm going to reprise it for a minute because I, I've been reading it all over the place in this whole week wherever I've been teaching. And it, it, it makes a big hit because it says some really important things. When disappointment has brought you low or sadness has colonized you or fear has conquered your imagination, you experience a contraction of your horizon. Your sense of possibility is damaged and even abolished. Pain is a monopolist. That's such an important thing. Something happens to you and the whole world disappears. You get, a, a, you get word that uh, uh, your, my daughter calls from some faraway place and says, I didn't get the job, or something happens, or my relationship is ending, or my grandchild uh, has had emergency surgery in the middle of the night, or something or other, you forget about the whole world. You're not interested in turning on the news at that moment. The only news that you're interested in is, is my person better? That, that is the news that we want. He goes on to say, so really the horizon contracts. The most urgent thing when you are burdened by your stories, 
is to restore a more various understanding of what life holds, of its true abundance, so that the bleakness in which you find yourself is not all you know. You need to widen the borders of your consciousness and crowd them out with other things. Then he says this very important line, sadness can never be retired completely because there's always a basis for reality in it. We don't become sad about nothing, you know? That if your daughter calls from some faraway place and says, I didn't get the job, we can't say, well, you know, it's such a varied cosmos and you never know and new things could happen and you never know from bad things, good things could come and other things will come and this too shall pass and they're all true. <laughs> and you feel sad and you feel sad. Something that was dear to you, a person, a relationship, a way of being, your own health, you suddenly find out you can't do that anymore because now you have X or Y. You don't say, oh, well, you know, it was great while it lasted. You say, oh, I really enjoyed that. I feel bad now. You know? you know, I, I, the, the, here's a totally banal, not important thing. Uh, I started to do yoga when I was 20, 30 years old, and I loved it, and I was a very ardent practitioner. And within five years, I had numbness in the ends of my fingers, and I saw a neurologist who said, promise me you'll never stand on your head again, because that actually was the nerve that I was, so I promised I'd never stand on my head again. And now I never think about it. But then, and for a long time, I'd see people standing on their heads in yoga studios, and I'd think, oh, I can't stand on my head again. It's not that big of a deal. How many times in life do you have a compelling urge to stand on your head? But we miss things that, uh, that we, that, you know, just, I can't do that anymore, and I can't do that anymore. How many people could make a list, you don't have to tell me what's on the list right now, of five things that you can't do anymore that you used to do? Think, think. Everybody, you know. Oh, this is last week in the, um, in the New York Times Magazine section, and it's Leon... Wieseltier, W-I-E-S-E-L-T-I-E-R. He's a lovely writer who I've read before, and it's called Turner Classic Movies, because he's going to go on to say that his is watching Turner Classic Movies. You watch a little bit of Turner Classic Movies, the grip on your mind. But the, the, what really gets people's uh, attention is the sense, really, that... Pain is a monopolist. Pain in your mind. My daughter is unhappy. My son is unhappy. I am unhappy. My mother is dying. My child, my... Uh, it's a terrible thing to have a child who's, who's died. Um, it's a terrible thing to have anybody who you love die. And it's a sad thing to not be able to do things that you used to enjoy. And the, 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 it's, it's so clear. It's not about saying, oh, well, easy come, easy go. It's not. It's hard go. But, but that's actually to be able to say, all right, not I feel, well, you know, it had its time. Da, da, da. Uh, who said that the other day? I was so pleased. Oh, Nancy's niece, who was with us last week, 
was telling me after she was visiting from the East Coast, she was telling, she was telling a group of people about a, a club that she was part of that for various reasons she isn't part of anymore. And she said, you know, I could think about uh, how much I wish I could be in that club again, but I could also think about I had a good time in that club, and now that's not working, I'll have to do something else. I think, wow, that's actually in a young person. In an old person, it's like the Buddha. So in a young person, it's really an extraordinary point of view, how to change the story around your situation. Anyway, the reason, the thing we were going to do today, and the thing that I wanted to have a little prelude to, was we were going to talk about the cultivation of those uh, traits of um, virtue. Where's Margie? Margie was going to tell us. There you are. Is your story about the cultivation of virtue or one of the virtues in any way? Okay. Do you remember uh, a time uh, when I, I said about six months ago, everybody here is a Dharma teacher. Everybody can tell a Dharma story based on something that happened today. You don't have to remember three weeks ago or four months ago. Every day something happens when we think, oh, wow, look at that. Somebody was kind and I benefited. Or I was confused and I was unhappy and then I got it and then I wasn't unhappy. Do you know the line out of Amazing Grace was, blind but now I see. I think the whole, I think it's, it's, it's the punchline or the, the denouement of every Dharma story is I didn't get it, I suffered while I wasn't getting it, and then I did get it and I stopped suffering. Not I did get it and I wasn't, I was happy forever, because maybe you're not happy, but you stop suffering when you get it. This is what happens. I said we could all be Dharma teachers and that I would love to put together a book that was a compilation of stories that happen to people in everyday life that when they happen, we could say, oh, I just learned from this. Not, you know, so I was thinking... We have an idea that certain people are Dharma teachers. Everybody is a Dharma teacher. If we all got up and told our stories, we'd all have... So I said, write me a story and send it to me that happened from your life. I'll put them together. I even actually talked to uh, a couple of publishers about it, a little bit reticent, but they said, you know, we, we know who you are, so maybe think about it. But I only got about 10 stories. And... Here was my, you know, I put out, and now it's going out again in a minute. So it could resurrect if you're one of the people who sent a story. I have a, I have a little file of about 10 stories. Everybody in the world now knows that my email is sylviaborstein at gmail.com. <laughs> but it hasn't overburdened my email, and certainly not with Dharma stories. And this morning, uh, Margie said, you know, I have a story. Are you still taking stories? So I thought, whoa, I thought, what if every week when we just, we kind of end our contemplative part, what if we begin the rest of our part with a story from somebody else? I don't know if we want to do that every week. We might not like doing it, but Margie has a story she wanted to tell us today, and I had the idea that it might very well fit with our idea of looking at the paramitas. So go, Margie. You want... Well, no, but you know what you have to, you know what you need to do? Would you rather? No, would you rather? Then you have to come and say it into a microphone, otherwise nobody hears it. Can I sit here and say it? Yeah. Okay, here, here come. 
Okay. Here comes Marty with the... If I can figure it out, It sounds like you did. Let me see. Oh, yeah, it's on. Um, okay. I was on a trip, solo trip to Ireland a couple of years ago, and I was on a bus in the countryside, and those of you who've been in vehicles and country roads in Ireland know how narrow they are, and I'm kind of a nervous backseat driver anyway. So um, everything was fine, and the driver was driving, and beautiful countryside, and then a woman got on the bus, and there was a little sign that said, please do not speak to the driver. Well, she stood there and was talking to the driver, and he kept turning his head away from the road to talk to her, and I'm increasingly getting more and more nervous and frightened, and I almost got up to say to him, to them, could you please sit down, you know, you're making me really nervous. And then I just kind of realized that I didn't have to intervene. The problem was my fear. It was my fear. And that I could use loving-kindness phrases to make myself feel a little better. And so mm -hmm. I started reciting, may I be safe, may I be at peace, you know, <laughs> all the Sylvia phrases. Mm -hmm. And slowly I just started calming down, and I just felt such peace, and I was really able to let go of whatever was going to happen. And that's the first time it really clicked like that. Listen, I'm very happy that you told the story, Margie. Now, when you go home, write it and send it to me. And I'll put it in that little collection. And now that I've said this out, and this talk goes out on all over the, you know, from Dharma Seed, maybe 100 stories will arrive in the next two weeks, and maybe I'll have a new project to do together. Everybody's got a story to say, I realize the truth of my suffering is my suffering. You know, that uh, <laughs> look around, a whole bus of people is riding. They're not, in that moment, distraught. And as you pointed out, they, that you, I mean, I'm sure other people along with me thought, makes a lot of sense to say, don't talk to the driver, we're here on a difficult thing. Hey, why not say, madam, please sit down. You know, I'd like the driver to concentrate. On the other hand, what I think what your mind has done, which is what my mind might have done in those circumstances or anybody's, is assume that because he's not, because she's talking, he will have an accident. And because he's talk she's talking and the road is windy, he will have an accident. But the truth is that anybody can have an accident anywhere. Uh, so it's not necessarily the only answer to that. Or he might tell her to sit down and have an accident anyway. You know, but you, you, you just don't know. If I, no, no, because I'm, I'm thinking about if the driver was suddenly texting on a road like that. I think everybody would stand up and say, put away that, <laughs> that phone. So, you know, you've made a determination that this is a dangerous situation because the road is windy and she's talking. This means that I might maybe think to myself, I wouldn't probably love it, but I might think to myself, you know, the driver is not objecting. Maybe he's driven this road 5,000 times and he knows every nuance in this road. Maybe I could trust that for this time. You know? And... The main th and the tagline that you said at the end, which I think is so important, I'm not in control anyway. You know, that uh, 
who had ever had a situation where they were the, with a cab driver that you thought my life is at stake here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't know because your life is at stake as you cross the street too. Because also from drivers, you don't know. The other thing about that story, I think, was that at the beginning she said, "I'm a nervous backseat driver," mm -hmm. and there was that self-knowledge that maybe she was over-assessing it yeah. just because of who she was. And I think that's another issue, another thing we get through all this is to know yourself and what your tendencies are. Yes, I think that's hugely important. Uh, I've probably said it about myself that uh, I'm not a backseat driver as much as I uh, have a tendency, probably other people as well, to, uh, to catastrophize. Anybody thinks about what could be given a, a fairly neutral piece of information. Uh, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're combing your hair in the mirror in an airport restroom, and the public address system says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? Do you think to yourself, uh-oh, the plane I'm waiting for has just crashed? How many people think that? No, no, that, that, so I'm not the only one who thinks. Or, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is a, a public service announcement, and you think, ah, oh, they're just saying about some terrorism, something about it. And then they say, please keep your baggage within <laughs> arm's reach, because, you know, they, but in that half a second between when they say and you hear it, you make the most, the most catastrophic. So what happens to me now, because it happens, I have one of those minds, most catastrophic thought, and what I say to myself is, look at that, that is far out. Your mind has exactly the same glitch in it now that it always had, it's a neuronal glitch. It, it takes certain information and it spins it that way. And so other people, they spin it another way, and other people, they spin it another way. And look what, it's amazing, we have glitches, each of us, and it's amazing. They don't change, but we get to see them. You say, there goes my glitch again, that's all. <laughs> so I want to talk about why we are talking and, and why we will tell stories about how everything is about developing kindness and for, uh, to oneself, which is to really to do loving kindness for oneself. Seriously, because if I do for myself as a sweetheart, there's your uh, really unfortunate glitch of catastrophizing. Relax, you'll be fine, take a breath. May I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering. It's a very kind thing to do. It's what I would do to somebody else who was upset, or it's what I do to myself. When I began to study meditation, this is a five minute maybe summary of the shift I think that has taken place over the last 20, 30 years in Dharma teaching in the West. When, in the 1970s, I got interested in meditation, I was not primarily motivated by the desire to be a kinder person. That was not what I was thinking about. I actually think I became a kinder person. I think, I, I think it's the principal thing that's happened. My husband always says when I talk about that or I teach it, he said, you were always a kind person. But, and that may be true. I came from kind people. But really, I became a kinder person because I am more alert to, the, uh, to what's happening. I'm more alert to who needs what. I'm more alert to the, to the discomfort that I could cause by not being thoughtful about what I did. 
uh, by not uh, watching my intention before I spoke. Uh, and I'm more alert to the pain of remorse that I have after I do something inept. So I'm more really, my, my, um, my compass is a little bit more, more refined on really not causing suffering in the world. Mainly because I realize that we are all operating uh, in, a, in a life that's inevitably filled with suffering. It's not only suffering. The biggest, I think, misunderstanding about Buddhism in the West, which is dissipating now as it becomes more well-known and accepted, is that it's a gloomy religion because it starts out with life is suffering. But the first noble truth, which is translated as life is suffering, doesn't say it's suffering. It just says it's not dependable. It's not anything you can count on to keep you happy because it's continually changing. It's like standing on shifting sands. The minute you think, wow, I got it all together, something else happens. You can't keep it together. And it's not for making a mistake. It's because things keep on happening. Had that bus gone off the, uh, the, 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 the road, many people's lives, not only the people in the bus, but the people they were attached to, would have been different forever and ever and ever. And it happens in a, a, probably eight billion permutations every single day, however many, seven or eight billion different permutations every day that we all go out every day. We don't all come home at the end of the day. Uh, one of my things that catches my mind so much I think probably many of you have heard me say this. So I'm riding home and there's bad traffic and I check um, on KCBS that tells you the traffic every 10 minutes. And they'll say there's been a, uh, an accident with fatalities on highway so-and-so and, -so, and uh, the, uh, 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 there are ambulances headed to the site and police cars and fire engines and uh, You'd be best served if you took Highway 92 to avoid the blockage then. And they have to do that. It's traffic information. But on the other hand, I always feel, why don't they stop and say, wow, there's been a traffic there. Let's all slow down a little bit. Think a little bit. There's been an accident. Somebody is not going to come home tonight. Somebody who left this morning and thought they were going to come home tonight. So I watch in my mind that if I think, ugh, you know, the road is crowded. The road is crowded. It might be because somebody isn't coming home or not coming home in the same shape that they left this morning. There's all kinds of things that can happen. But to have other than, what I said before about telling people, other than a compassionate response, even a compassionate response for myself. Oh, dear, I'm so, you know, I, I so want to be home. I'm so tired. I'm so hungry. I've been on the freeway a long time. May I be comfortable, may I be peaceful, may this uncomfortableness soon pass. May those people, whoever it is, if it's an accident, may it not be too bad. May everyone get home, may all beings be peaceful and happy. That really is the only thing to say in any situation. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I was thinking, uh, I was, when at, on the time that I met um, Mahagosananda, uh, ten years before he died, already old, a little old Cambodian 
not a little prelate. He was the chief prelate of Cambodia in the Theravada tradition, but little and old. And the only thing he said in this conference where people were talking about um, what the effects Dharma teaching could have in the West on changing the politics of the world, mostly what he said was, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. But when I thought about it later, people said, well, you know, Gosananda didn't say very much. Maybe he said anything, that, that the whole thing that needs to be said, you know, that uh, may all beings be peaceful and happy. Anyway, when I started to meditate, I think the short answer is I started to meditate in the 70s, not because I wanted to be kinder or because I wanted to refine my patience or my ability to renounce or my morality, which has probably always been fairly good, Again, because I came from moral people, I, I began because it was, was everybody was doing it. It was trendy, you know. Everybody was meditating. Everybody was, and and the stories that went around with it was: Did you hear so and so meditates? And people in their group they levitate, so uh, and uh, they can tell the future, and they you know they can read who you are. And, and I never really wanted to meditate, uh, levitate. I, I really, well, truth, truth be known, I wanted to shine in the dark, because that was another thing that people said could happen. No, seriously, this is a full disclosure. Uh, my grandfather, no, they said that about different people, that they had auras and you could see them, and that certain people saw auras about so-and-so. And my grandfather, who lived very old, told me uh, in some conversation when he was way into his 90s and talked about his marriage to my grandmother, and he loved her very much. He said she was so beautiful. He said, at our wedding, people said, look at Fischl's wife. She shines in the dark. And I was so moved by that. And you know, he was married in the time when the hall was lit by gaslight. So anyway, my grandmother shined in the dark. And I remember her as a woman who died when I was a young girl. I loved her a lot, and I wanted to shine in the dark. And they said stories about people who meditated, and you could see they were glowing. So secretly, I wanted to shine in the dark. Uh, but I actually went to meditation retreats over and over and over again because I liked Dharma. And I liked that the stories that people told during that period were not about people who became much nobler of spirit, but people who triumphed over uh, fear and triumphed really over sadness, that the, the stories of um, uh, the stories of the woman who came with her uh, son who had died, and the Buddha really opened her eyes to the fact that everybody dies, and she became his disciple. I was touched by that story, but uh, I, it was not in the beginning as um, profound as it is now. Depending on how you read that story and what, what translation of it you read, some of them are more filled with the idea that the Buddha, out of compassion, had Kisagatami uh, discover that everyone suffers that sort of loss, out of compassion. Because when I heard it the first time, it sounded pretty heartless. Look, this happens to everybody. It's, depending on what you read, it's different. 
But I didn't think it was in the cards for me, even compassion or no compassion, to be able to do that so gracefully. And I was still afraid of things, and I still catastrophized, and I was still a fairly uh, anxious person. <laughs> I think I'm less anxious now. I think I really am. But, you know, it creeps up on you incrementally. I wouldn't have said from one day to the next or one insight to the next I became a different person. I'm different now from 30 years ago. But I'm, I, I don't feel I'm less emotional. I'm probably more emotional, but less startleable. I, I, I would think about myself. But anyway, here I am, and I'm going to retreats and retreats and retreats because I like Dharma. I also like quiet, and uh, I like being away by myself. I like not talking to people for a week or two. Uh, I'm good company for myself, by and large. So. Uh, but I, I still would not have said I have this particular, that kindness is my goal. And the zeitgeist wasn't saying that. The still was to free yourself from suffering. Over the last decade, at least, I think in the United States, the, 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 um, the times have changed where Dharma is going. Maybe because of um, the tremendous influence in the culture of neurobiology and uh, the... Uh, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based uh, psychotherapy, uh, mindfulness-based uh, childbirth and parenting. The whole idea that by paying attention, you did things uh, in a way that worked out in a more felicitous way. You were less impromptu in what you did, and things worked out better. And over the last 10 years, I think, more that not only did things work out better, like your company would be more productive and earn more money, but that actually people's hearts would change and they'd become kinder. And as a result of the kindness, more happy. That's, I think, the change that it's made in the last decade, maybe 15 years. It parallels the amount of time that Dharma has been in the West, where it's, I think, been assimilating the values of Western culture. It parallels the, um, the growing field of neurobiology. It also parallels the influx of more women into teaching Dharma. And it also parallels the increased interest in, in teaching loving kindness as well as insight practice as part of Dharma practice. And I don't, sociologists years from now, I think, will parse out which one made the biggest difference. I once said to my teacher, Jack Cornfield, in all of my, who has known my practice now for, since it began almost 40 years ago, I said, when do you think it was, I said, I've changed over the years. And he said, yes, you have. So, well, incrementally or just slowly, or he said, uh, I think the biggest change happened with you. Like sort of, Push it, you know, an incremental, biggest incremental change happened around the time that you started to do metta practice, which would be 1985, 86, something like that. So really what, it, and it's a whole thing, it's a different kind of triumph to say I am impervious to the, not, or to hold out for oneself, I want to be able to 
be open to whatever life hands me, I do. But I'm, I don't think about that. I think I want to have a happy heart now. And the happy heart, I don't really want to think about we're practicing for the moment that we're dying, which was a thing that we used to say, to realize that things arise and pass away and no one dies. It's just one passing from one form to another. All of that is fine with me. What I really want is to have a happy life. You know, that, uh, that there's a wonderful line from one of the Zen teachers who said, as she was dying, final thing that she said was, thank you very much, I have no complaints. <laughs> I, I think to myself, I would like to say that, but I'd like to say it now, not that last minute. And to have no complaints, I'd have to both have wisdom, which is one of the paramis. Um, it's, I think, the fifth one down. And the, because to complain is to say it should be different from how it is. But it's not different from how it is. That's, you know, in life, maybe in Macy's, you bring home what you think is a size 36 and it's a size 44. You say, this isn't what I ordered. So you bring it back. It's not different from what it is. But, that's, but otherwise, in life, you say, this shouldn't be happening. World poverty should not be happening in a globe that could feed anybody. It's not a sentence that makes sense. I wish that world poverty was not happening in a world that could feed anybody, is what it means. It should, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it is happening. It would be different if people had already developed their altruism to the point that they were willing to sacrifice their own for the good of other people, but that hasn't happened yet. So there's an article, which I, I'll save for next week now because I want to do the homework more, in this current edition of the New York Review of Books on the biology of being good to others and what promotes it and what doesn't promote it and is it genetic and it, what is it? And, uh, but let's, go, let's spend a little time on the homework because now everybody has all the papers and come back next week with your papers. And Sylvia, there are a few that are sitting on a chair back there if there's anybody that didn't get one. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Marty. So here, let's take the paper and the homework. This particular chart, which I'm actually quite proud of, uh, I made. <laughs> I forgot about it until a week ago, and then I discovered it. And I thought, oh, look at this. This is good. The 10 paramis are, are the, 10, uh, the 10 traits, of, the 10 virtuous traits that are down the first column are uh, all of them things that you can develop. Uh, you can, I cannot decide that today I'm going to practice being a tall person or, uh, <laughs> or uh, that today I'm going to be able to run a 10-minute mile. You know, that it's just not going to happen. Uh, I never was a bigger person, and, I, I, and whatever I could run, I can't do. But I could, on any day, say, today my practice is generosity. Now, this is, a, this is a, a, really an arcane piece of Buddhism that uh, the folklore that goes with it is, it is said that in the, for the Buddha, in order for him, in the life that he was born as Siddhartha Gautama and became the Buddha, in order for him to, to be able to have his insight into the cause of suffering and the end of suffering, 
he needed to have perfected all of these heart traits. So they're all things that you could do. And uh, what I put out last week, which we're now going to talk about, and next week too, I hope, because I love this idea, is that you could decide, a person could decide, I'm going to practice this particular one. And I'm really going to take, this is going to be my thing. And that all the practices are really permutations and combinations of each other. They're different ways of looking at um, a, a perfectible trait that perfects the general trait of not being self-centered and being really attuned to the needs of what's around us proximally and in the whole world. Does that make sense? Is that a good sentence? So who did the homework? I bet Nancy did the homework. What's the homework? Nancy, tell the homework. Did you remember? The, the homework was just to choose one of these and find a story from your own experience that illustrates your experience with this one of the parents. Exactly. So, so just as Margie told the story about practicing loving kindness in order to readjust her own nervous system, to look at all of these things and see, I'm just going to look at one trait this week and see what I could say about it. Sorry to call on you, but I kind of counted. I know you're a person who does homework. <laughs> I'm sorry to out you about that in case it's embarrassing, but you're a person who does homework. What can I say? Okay, so do you want to do yours? I can. Okay, so I'm going to hold this. I'm going to give this. Oh, there you go. Okay. I have to preface this by saying this is a, an example of non-perfection in the practice of one of the paramis. Okay. Um, I was on retreat. Um, I'm in a program where I'm in a series of retreats, so I'm seeing the same people over and over again. And one woman, Christy, came up to me one day and hugged me while I was wearing this sweater. And she said, oh, this is so soft. This is so beautiful. And every time she saw me after that, she would come up to me and hug to me. And she started telling other people, you have to come and feel Nancy's sweater. This is beautiful. <laughs> and just, just. <laughs> I can actually see where this is going. <laughs> so you'll notice I still have the sweater. I do. Right. So this is, this is the failure of generosity. So I did. <laughs> un unlike you with your scarf. Okay. I did have the impulse to give Christy my sweater. And I thought about it and I thought about it. And my thinking was, this is, this is my, my first cashmere sweater that I ever owned. I have others. None of them are as nice as this one. Um, the company that made this one doesn't make them as well anymore. If I give this away, I will not ever have the experience of this sweater anymore. And I struggled with that. And I finally went up to Christy on the next to the last day of the retreat, I think. And I said, Christy, I have the impulse to give you this sweater. And I have to confess to you, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. And she said, that's okay. I wouldn't have taken it anyway. Aww. Which, and we hugged, and, and, it, and it had a good res resolution. But I had some afterthoughts, and one of my afterthoughts was, um, we have two more retreats together, so I'm going to bring my sweater, and I'm going to give it to her for the duration of the retreat. She can have it and enjoy it for the duration of the retreat. <laughs> and then last night, as I was thinking about what I was going to take and, and pack, I 
remembered that there's a uh, it was a sweater set and there's a short sleeve sweater that goes underneath this that is too big for me and I never ever wear it so I'm going to bring it and give her that one instead uh. so it's it's not kingly generosity it's maybe um, Jack of Diamonds generosity <laughs> okay I think it's a okay because we're not going to talk about it a lot let's just say what we think of the story right. okay thank you very very much what else okay there you go where's, where's Marty what's your name um, I'm going to talk about the moral inventory one. Uh, I know that I know about myself that I have issues about feeling insecure, various aspects. And I was meeting an old friend's boyfriend. We were spending time together, and I found myself saying something pretty snobby to him. I was disappointed in myself as I thought about it later. And a lot of times, I know this about myself, that insecurity can manifest as uh, snobbery. And it, it was not a big thing, and we spent hours together, and this was the only thing that I came up that I was unhappy about. So I thought about it later, and it turned out that I was going to spend more time with them a couple days later. And I thought about whether I should apologize to him. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that he even noticed. And I ended up deciding not to apologize to him. I thought it might be awkward, and I might have been making more of a bigger deal about it. But I tried to just... The next time I saw him, I tried to just have, have better behavior. And... Um, at one point, I did spend some time asking him about his career, and he talked about it, and I felt like I got to know him better. That's my story. Whoa. No, really, that's it. You know what's the, a really important piece of that story is that the real purpose, I think, or the, the I mean, I don't want to say about the, the real purpose. It's all real. But I think the major thing about parami practice is not so much what we do, but what we learn. Mm -hmm. That it, it's really a practice, because we always fall short. Nancy didn't give the sweater. <laughs> uh, and we do speak ineptly. And, uh, and every time, not every time we do, but every time we do, and we realize... That wasn't what I'd really like to do. That here's the real me. That would like that what the real me would like to do is here. I did this. I think it's a tremendous discernment to say it just muddies everything if we start to, on behalf of your own distress, re bring up something that you don't have to bring up. But they, if your own distress motivates you to feel remorse, then you say I'm not going to do that anymore. Then you are changed from it. Uh, my, my, my friend Mary Neal, who's a, uh, a nun and one of, my first, one of my first teachers in graduate school, said um, the definition of a spiritual experience is something that once it happens to you, you're not the same person anymore. Mm -hmm. So you always think, well, maybe that requires seeing a burning bush or you know, <laughs> an apparition of somebody. 
But, you know, you could also say something and, um, and feel, feel something about what you just did and be changed by it, you know. Okay, yeah, go. in that sweater story, which I totally related to. Um, and when I've had that experience, I feel shame in what you just said. And then I wasn't generous to myself because I was feeling a lot of shame in falling short of the perfection. Mm -hmm. So that was extraordinarily important that, to take it as a learning rather than yeah. a failure. And in, in my experience, maybe in yours as well in your lifetime, when I've done that, uh, I can even now think of an experience where I did something inept. I was where I was 15 years old, and uh, I was 15 years old. I was walking along. I saw a young boy, a young man that I went to school with, that I had a little bit of a crush on, and uh, who was uh, walking quietly along the street, and uh, seemed to be walking quietly along the street, and. Uh, I uh, rushed up to him and greeted him in a friendly, you know, I greeted him with some story about, wow, what did you think of this or that that happened in school today? Not noticing that he had his rosary in his hand and he had been saying the rosary as he walked along in that way. And he didn't say anything about it. I saw him to hold the rosary this way and put it in his pocket, have the conversation and went off. And I felt so inept about having disturbed his prayers that I remember it to this moment. I remember where I was standing on what street. And, you know, uh, I don't think for the worse. I, don't, I think it was a good thing that I felt bad. I don't think it was a terrible thing in his life or mine. And I don't really feel bad about it. It was just an inept 15-year-old crush, motivated ineptitude, of which I have plenty worse. But, but each of them stays in my mind. And, you know, billions of things have happened to us in our lives, and we only remember some of them. How many people could remember a thing that humiliated them at some point? Everybody. Who has a story? Thank you very, very much for that story. Did you have a story you were going to tell? No. No, I just was so taken with that. Good. Uh, my name's Justine, and <clears throat> uh, mine's about loving kindness and friendliness. A few years back, I was at a doctor's office, and I had to have a dermatology little bit of surgery on my face, and there were several people in the office, and we sat around, and they do, first you go in for a little bit, and then you come out, and you wait, and somebody else goes in, you wait, and wait, and anyway, we were getting close to the end of the day, and there was only three of us left in the waiting room, and we were still waiting for our final bit, and and two uh, the other one of the other women and myself we were sitting there saying well why they keep us so long they told us 15 minutes it's been an hour and a half what's going on we're grumbling about it and there was another woman sitting there in the office and she pulled out her ipad or something and started fiddling with it and i said oh i said you got an ipad this is when they were sort of new and and she said yeah she said but i can't get the password to work. They, they told me a password, but I can't get it to work. And So I start chatting with her, and 
she, I don't know, we were talking about the iPad, how to get it work, and, and then I said to her, I said, I said, well, where are you from? And she said, oh, she said, I live in the most beautiful place in the world. And I said, oh, where's that? And she gave me the name of some place I hadn't heard of here in California. And she said, well, it's up by Chico. And in my own mind, I'm thinking, Chico, I don't know. Chico's not so <laughs> beautiful to me. But this woman's enamored with the place that she lives. And oh, yeah, I have this lovely garden. And I'll show you some pictures. She'll, she's trying to get the pictures out to show me. And we just chatted on. And her her ebullience of life was so grand. And she said, oh, she said, are you a little scared? Because we weren't sure whether there would be, you know, any kind of problem with our sample, uh, with the biopsy they were doing, blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, well, yeah, I'm a little nervous. And she said, oh, she said, I'm a, I'm a little scared too. And, uh, but, you know, I think it's going to be all right. And well, what do you do, I said to her. She said, oh, she said, I drive a bus. She said, it's a great job. And I mean, she was just like this wonderful spirit. And I tried at one point to engage the other woman in the office who was still sort of sitting there very uptight. And she wasn't, wasn't so interested in that. But I realized how this woman's attitude totally changed mine and how I became relaxed, and my spirit was picked up, I wasn't as afraid, all of that happened just by her, her, her kindness, her friendliness. Uh, and it was just, uh, when I left that office that day, I thought, man, what a difference that woman made in those 15 minutes of my life, mm -hmm. you know? And now it's a number, first of all, thank you very much, very good story. Yeah, and obviously everybody got, who didn't, I mean, everybody relates to that story. You've all been with somebody who, unbeknownst to them, they didn't think I'm going to now lift up the spirits of everybody else. They just did by their very, as the word you use about ebulence, about life. Hey, I live in Chico. And, you know, I imagine most of us who live here in Marin wouldn't think, oh, boy, Chico, you know. She goes a little bit hot, a little bit dry, a little bit this, a little bit that. But, and I drive a bus. How many people really? But, but what, a, what a teaching. The teaching is, wow, life is fantastic, isn't it? You think, oh, I forgot that. Matter of fact, it is. That's what happens. Because so, she didn't say that in those many words. She demonstrated that. And it, it reminds you, life is fantastic. And, you know, beats the alternative. And, you know, and anyway, what you're nervous about is that you, you, you won't have more life. That's great. Anyway, more, one more story, but we're going to do them next week. Go. Here you go. I love this story, Bizarre. Aren't you liking the story? Thank you. So um, about 10 years ago, I was walking my granddaughter in the stroller every morning. And uh, next to my daughter's house was a beautiful park, and I loved to go there. It was so nicely maintained. The grass was always green and clean, and the tre trees streamed. And once in a while, I saw some leftovers there, a can, a bottle. And it made me so upset. I said, how people can spoil this beauty? And without knowing, I just picked it up. 
throw to the garbage bin. The next morning, I brought a bag with me to pick up the garbage and made me so happy. <laughs> and I said, look, a thing that upset me can make me so happy. Yeah. Yeah. And I kept doing that. And one morning, I even thought, I hope to find a lot of garbage today. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know where does it fit. No, no, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I think if it ever comes to pass, I'm going to write down, wait, wait, I, I'm sure I have. If it ever comes to pass that we put these together into any kind of a thing, at least a story... No, but you see, the, maybe, maybe the name of the book is I Hope to Find a Lot of Garbage Today. <laughs> because, because that's great. You know, practicing, you know, all these nights, practicing in everyday life, having this as a, another learning, another blankety-blank learning experience, you know, the, all that. I hope to find a lot of garbage today. What a change of stuff. You know what that is? Uh, it's um, let's let's see what it is. You know, I okay. I think okay. Do you all? How many people can think of it? I can think of it as being a few of these things. What do you think it is? Just tell me the word. Generosity. What else? Loving kindness. What else? Equanimity and wisdom, wisdom, energy, determination. We got them all. Huh? Virtue. I also think what it was in a very, very direct sense is renunciation, because what you were renouncing is because it says renouncing addictive behaviors. And the addictive behavior that I certainly see in myself is the behavior of moralizing, judging, and being holier than now about look at who could do a thing. You know, it's a very it's a very seductive behavior. Whoever litters in parks found them. You know, but it's a bad behavior. I mean, it's it's not bad in the moralistic sense. It's a non. Um, it does not contribute to how to happiness. It does not contribute to happiness that, you know, uh, the, the, the um, what is it that James Barras always has a state, the burdensome practice of judging and comparing, it, it starts with that, the burdensome practice of judging and comparing, and I don't remember what, how the rest of it goes, but it fatigues the mind and leads to nothing or something like that. It's a line from the third Zen patriarch. But the beginning of it is the tedious practice of judging and comparing. It, it's, you know, it just fatigues the mind, doesn't lead to anything good. So are you up for another week of, uh, okay. So and now everybody's gonna bring a story. 
here I'm going to make the homework a little bit more inter not interesting, complex. You tell a story about one of the paramitas, and when you get all finished, you say, I could have told this story also as an example of, and pick out another one, because you could have. Okay? Oh, I'm thrilled. How fun to be back every week. Okay. Um, I think so. I think so. Next week's today is the today is the tenth, eleventh. It's the eighteenth. I am, and then Tony is here on the twenty fifth. Um, all right, we have a lot of good stuff to talk about. May all beings be peaceful and happy, and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.